am back for another episode of the Autotechnicus Americans. Hopefully I pronounced that right this time. So we're going to talk about the Algonquins in this episode. But first, I want to give you a quick update. I am on YouTube finally by Afropagan. And uh, I don't have a lot of videos up, but four so far, it's a good start. So if you want, check it out, Afropagan on YouTube. Okay, and that noise again is my air conditioner because it's really cold out. And I don't want to be shivering while I'm <laughs> uh, recording a podcast. So... Bear with it, please. Okay. First, I want to read from realhistory.com. And uh, this is an excerpt from written record of the voyage of 1524 of Giovanni de Verrazano as recorded in a letter to Francis I, King of France, July 8, 1524. And this is uh, published by Columbia University. Since the storm that we encountered in the northern regions, most serene king, I have not written to tell your majesty of what happened to the four ships which you sent over the ocean to explore new lands, as I thought you had already been informed of everything, how we were forced by the fury of the winds to return in distress to Brittany with only the Normandy and the Dauphine, and that after undergoing repairs there began our voyage with these two ships, equipped for war, following the coast of Spain, your most serene majesty will have heard. And then according to our new plan, we continued the original voyage with only the Dauphine. Now on our return from this voyage, I will tell your majesty what we found. We set sail with the Dauphine from the deserted rock near the island of Madeira, which belongs to the most serene king of Portugal, on the 17th day of January, last. We had 50 men and were provided with food for eight months with arms and other articles of war and naval munitions. We sailed westward on the gentle breath of a light easterly wind. In 25 days, we covered 800 leagues. On the 24th day of February, we went through a storm as violent as ever sailing man encountered. We were delivered from it with the divine help and goodness of the ship whose glorious name and happy destiny enabled her to endure the violent waves of the sea. We continued on our westerly course, keeping rather to the north. In another 25 days, we sailed more than 400 leagues where there appeared a new land which had never been seen before by any man, either ancient or modern. At first, it appeared to be rather low-lying, having approached within a quarter of a league. We realized that it was inhabited, for huge fires had been built on the seashore. We saw that the land stretched southward and coasted along it in search of some port where we might anchor the ship and investigate the nature of the land. But in 50 leagues, we found no harbor or a place where we could stop with the ship. 
Seeing that the land continued to the south, we decided to turn and skirt it toward the north, where we found the land we had sighted earlier. So we anchored off the coast and sent a small boat into land. We had seen many people coming to the seashore, but they fled when they saw us approaching. Several times they stopped and turned around to look at us in great wonderment. We reassured them with various signs and some of them came up, showing great delight at seeing us and marveling at our clothes, appearance, and our whiteness. They showed us by various signs where we could most easily secure the boat and offer, offered us some of their food. We were on land and I shall now tell your majesty briefly what we were able to learn of their life and customs. They go completely naked except that around their loins they wear skins of small animals like martens with a narrow belt of grass around the body to which they tie various tails of other animals which hang down to the knees. The rest of the body is bare and so is the head. Some of them wear garlands of birds' feathers. They are dark in color. So, open parentheses, comment, some, of, some use the word black, but it is entirely up to the translator, close parentheses. Not unlike the Ethiopians with thick black hair, not very long, tied back behind the head like a small tail. As for the physique of these men, they are well proportioned, of medium height, a little taller than we are. They have broad chests, strong arms, and the legs and other parts of the body are well composed. There is nothing else except that they tend to be rather broad in the face, but not all, for we saw many with angular faces. They have big black eyes and an attentive and open look. They are not very strong, but they have a sharp cunning and are agile and swift runners. From what we could tell from observation in the last two respects, they resemble the Orientals, particularly those from the farthest Sumerian regions, possibly Malay Peninsula, Indonesia. Note on the use of dark rather than black. So the author of Real History continues, albinos will often use words of their own liking as a means of hiding black people in history. It all depends on a person's level of racism. Comparison to Ethiopians, of course, ends all debate. There are gushing descriptions of lighter-skinned natives following that may also be attributed to a translator's racism. I'm not gonna go into all of that. But I do wanna highlight Verrazano said, they are dark in color, not unlike the Ethiopians. I just wanted to point that out. Okay. Back to the first Americans were Africans expanded and revised by David Inhotep, PhD, second edition. Okay, here we go. The Algonquian family, adapted from the name of the Algonquian tribe. Okay. It's confusing. Algonquian language, Algonquian people, I, I don't know. Anyway, um, a little snippet here. The Algonquian are one of the most populous and widespread North American native language groups. 
Today, thousands of individuals identify with various Algonquian peoples. Historically, the peoples were prominent along the Atlantic coast and into the interior along the St. Lawrence River and around the Great Lakes. This grouping consists of the peoples who speak Algonquian languages. Okay. So, um, from F.W. Hodge, Algonquian Indian Genealogy from the Handbook of American Indians North of Mexico. Printed by House of Representatives, 59th Congress, First Session in 1906. He says, a linguistic stock which formerly occupied a more extended area than any other in North America territory reached from the east shore of Newfoundland to the Rocky Mountains. The eastern tribes from Maine to Carolina, the Algonquian, are also known as the Lenape. The Algonquian, however, uh, Dr. Imhotep says, should not be referred to as Lenape until after 2600 BC when the Mongolian Hyangnu people entered the Americas from Asia and mixed their blood with the Proto-American Algonquian people. Before the Algonquian began to mix with the Mongolian Hyangnu people, the Algonquian were Proto-American Africans. Once they mixed, they were called Lenape, or as Gonzalez Jose says, refers to them as Amerindians. We are using data from the Walum Olam's date of entry into the Americas as 2600 BC, instead of using the Powell date of after 3000 BC, out of respect for the traditions of the ancient ones. According to the Walum Olam, when the Mongolian Hiyongang knew, entered the Americas fighting and mixing their blood with the Proto-Americans after 2600 BC, they eventually arrived in Delaware on the East Coast in 1396 AD. By the time the Mongolians Hyung Nu reached Delaware, they had been mixing their blood for 1,204 years. My apologies for butchering some of the names not trying to be disrespectful. Okay, on to what Dr. Inhotep says. This point is made so the reader will not be confused and understand the following. When the Walam Ulam tells of a war in the Midwest between the Algonquian and Mound Builders, it must be understood that these are not the same people fighting each other. Also, the first mound builders were from Africa, just as the first Algonquian originally were before they mixed. As mentioned earlier, the Mongolian Hyang Hiyuang Nu migrated or expanded across North America from Asia and headed east. They had mixed their blood for more than a millennium and were not the same people by 1386 AD. It is not known if it was either a migration or an expansion or both. At this point, the Mongolian Hiyuangnu, I think I got it, were no longer just Mongolian or African. The exact migratory route the Mongolian Hiyuangnu supposedly traveled was across the northern part of the North America continent. 
According to the Wallam Olam, they traveled from Washington State east across the Rocky Mountains once they left Alaska. After descending out of the mountains, they loosely followed the Missouri River east and then southeast until it joined the Mississippi River. When they reached the Mississippi River region, they clashed with a large group of mound builders called the Adena or Taligas, depending on whom you ask. The Wallam Olam, originally written by Amarins, called the mound builders the Taligas. This reminded me of a trip to Egypt when a Nubian elder in Aswan was asked, what is the African name for Lake Victoria? Lake Victoria is close to 255 miles long and 155 miles wide. This is a huge lake. Therefore, we find many different groups of people who have lived around the lake for tens of thousands of years. Not surprisingly, each group living there has a different name for the lake. Similarly, it is safe to say that there are probably more than just two names for the people who built the mounds, since they are found all over eastern North America, Canada, Europe, and Africa. W.E.B. Du Bois said they were a riverine people. And this is a snippet from Dr. Uh, du Bois. The mounds in the United States are usually found near rivers. In the Ohio Valley, 10,000 mounds have been discovered. In the north, the mound zones begin in western New York and extended along the southern shore of Lake Erie into what is now Michigan, Wisconsin, and on to the states of Iowa and Nebraska. In the southern United States, the mounds line the Gulf of Mexico from Florida to eastern Texas and extended up through the Carolinas and across to the state of Oklahoma. The mounds of the mound builders were probably replicas of Negro forts in Africa. That this tendency to build forts and stockades proceeded from the Antilles once the Araraks had come in the beginning of the 16th century is proved by the presence of the similar works in Cuba. These are found in the most abandoned and least explored part of the island, and there can be little doubt that they were, lo they were locations of fugitive Negro and Indian stockades, precisely such as were in use in Africa. The results indicate that the African and American mounds have statues built in the same style with many of the same features. They support Wiener's theory that the Mande-speaking people built some of the Mississippian mounds. We find many similarities between the art styles of the inhabitants of the mounds found in the area that encompass ancient Mali and the mounds built in the United States and South America. It seems that warlike Lenape clashed with the mound builders and the mound builders did not fare so well, says Dr. Imhotep. That may have turned out different if the Lenape had to go up against the Iroquois. Oh, by the way, the excerpt from uh, of Dr. E.B. Du Bois is from The Gift of Black Folk, The Negroes in Making of America, published by Square One, 2009. Okay. Okay. So back to Dr. E.B. Du Bois, the area where the Lenape clashed with the mound builders of Cahokia is just north of where St. Louis is today. 
It was there that the Lenape joined forces with the Iroquois and began the Taliga's War that were among the largest battles ever fought in ancient America. Dr. Imhotep says, by the way, the Black Iroquois Indians were also from Africa. It was the Iroquois Confederacy who gave the American colonists the items that made up their constitution. So here's an excerpt from Kyle or Kylie Message from Museums and Social Activism, published by Taylor and Francis Group, page 192. Congress, on the occasion of the 200th anniversary of the signing of the United States Constitution, acknowledged the historical debt which this Republic of the United States of America owes to the Iroquois Confederacy and other Indian nations for their demonstration of enlightened democratic principles of government and their example of a free association of independent nations. Okay. Back to Dr. Imhotep. In a similar fashion, the Africans taught those who would listen the first scientific method with all of its components available today, including the first trans translation that is in Medunetcher called Hieroglyphics. The mound-building Taligas were defeated and fled south, never to return. From there, the Lenape loosely followed the Ohio River east to the Allegheny River, heading north just below Lake Ontario. Leaving the Great Lakes area, they traveled east-southeast, finally crossing into Delaware. They then turned and headed northeast to Middle Connecticut. In Connecticut, the Lenape turned northwest, finally ending their long journey around 20 miles into the state of Ontario, Canada. When they reached Ontario in 1396 AD, they were in an area surrounded by Proto-Americans who were most probably Skraelings, the so-called Pygmy. The Walam Ulam or Olam does not record another battle, so they probably settled there blending in and mixing even more with Proto-Americans. This is where their Walam Olum migration story from Asia ended. For clarification, identity is important. Quote, Mound builders were not the Native Americans we call Indians. They were a prehistoric culture or cultures that inhabited much of the area we know as the United States. I have to reiterate once again, Dr. Imhotep is saying African, 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 African. Now, if I moved from New York to Vancouver, Canada, and I've lived in Van and I then lived in Vancouver, Canada for 20 years, I don't think I can call myself a New Yorker anymore. I'm Canadian living in Vancouver. I may not be native, but I'm a Canadian living in Vancouver. So I guess he's, I'm just going to take a guess that he's saying African to, to differentiate between the Mongolian uh, or differentiate from the Mongolian Native American stock. Okay. But you know, once you you left Africa and you've been a you've been in another place for over a thousand years, you're not African anymore. Yes, you are dark skin, but you're not African anymore, and you're mixing with uh, 
Mongolian stock Native Americans, well, there you go. If, you, if I'm wrong, if you feel I'm wrong, please let me know. Drop me a line. Okay, back to Dr. Imhotep. However, logically speaking, before the Europeans began to enter the Americas, Africans were there first. Then the Asians entered, but there were only two groups before they began to mix. Therefore, if the mound builders were not Asians, logically they would have to belong to the other group, the Africans. There may have been confusion between the Adena and Taligas, but none between the Adena and the Hopewell. However, there is a dispute as to who the Hopewell people were, i.e., those who built the Hopewell mounds. Some believe they were a separate people from the Adena, and others believe they were related. An example in Ohio may show you who the Hopewell people were and how they may have been related to the Adena. So this is from uh, L. Bond, The Mounds and Mound Builders of Union County, Union County Public Library, um, found on September 13, 2010. Textbooks sometimes say that the Adena were succeeded by the Hopewell, but the relation is unclear. The Hopewell may simply have been a large stage of the same culture. Hopewell only refers to the farmer on whose property an early site was discovered. The Hopewell, too, built mounds and, like the Adena, seemed to have spoken an Algonquian language. Back to Dr. Imhotep. The mound-building Hopewell were probably just a later stage of the Algonquian-speaking Adena people. The mound builders can be divided into three consecutive groups. The first two are classified as woodlands. They are the Adena, Hopewell, and Mississippi of the woodland period. These people lived over a wide area from the Atlantic to the Mississippi Valley. The Mississippi group of mound builders obviously lived up and down the Mississippi River, but they are found over a much vaster area. The Americas had mound monuments as large as the pyramids of Egypt as seen in the Cahokia, Illinois Mound, just a few miles from St. Louis, Missouri. So I'll leave it to you to go to a map and look up Mississippi River and the mounds that used to or still exist there. Okay. Southern Algonquian. The Virginia Department of Historic Resources, or VDHR, has revealed in their literature that the American Indians were in Virginia at least 16,000 years ago. That is 14,508 years before Columbus arrived, even though this 16,000-year-old discovery is far more recent than the 51,700-year-old South Carolina find. The VDHR's mention of the 16,000-year discovery is still 4,000 years before the Barren Strait glaciers first began to melt around 12,000 years ago. Relating this find to Clovis, Paleo-Indians are documented by the state of Virginia to have been in North America 6,600 years before the Clovis people in 9400 BC. So since this group of Paleo-Indians was in North America for 4,000 years before Clovis, 
who is the most likely group to have been in Virginia 16,000 years ago. Here again, a familiar name resurfaces. Best guess is that it was the African Algonquian. Maps tracking the Algonquians show that their first concentration was in southeastern Canada and the northeastern United States, not the northwestern states. Another note that sets the Algonquian apart from other Amerinds is the fact that several different tribes or acts where they originated. The most popular answer was something to the effect that they have always been here on Turtle Island, North America, and did not migrate from anywhere. The Americas were also known as Abiyala by the South American indigenous tribes of the equatorial regions. Ixacitlan and by the Mexican tribes and more recently Turtle Island by the Canadian First Nation tribes of the Lower Lands. So um, here's another excerpt from, let's see, this is Dennis Zotig from the National Museum of American Indian, the Smithsonian Institute, September 4th, 2010. Our creation story says we came from the heavens. We came from the stars. We came from beneath the earth. We came from the lakes. We came from the valleys. We came from the hills. We came from the mountains. We came from the canyons and the islands. These are our creation stories, which have to be accepted as faith, much as Christianity has to be accepted by faith, and it is no less valuable. This is what we have been passed down from generations to generation of where we believe we were created. Okay. Origin stories versus evidence. To clarify the origin issue, a curious event took place in the Smithsonian's National Museum of American Indian in Washington, D.C. On the afternoon of September 4, 2010, a Native American, Dennis Zotig, gave a general admission lecture in the Potomac Room. Mr. Zotig says he's a mixture of three tribes, the Khoisan, the Santee Dakota, and the Oke Owingi. Inside the rotunda of the National Museum of the American Indian, he gave a basic speech about the so-called Native Americans followed by a question and answer period. Dr. Imhotep asked Zotig from where did the Native Americans originate? Mr. Zotig's answer was a little longer than the standard answer we had always been given. Dr. Imhotep has a live taping of Mr. Zotig's answer. He said, four tribes and Columbus tells us Africans were here first. Wow. Um, it would be nice. This is my opinion here. It would be nice if other um, mongoloid Native Americans and Native Americans mixed with European would... Let me rephrase that. It would be nice if the mongoloid Native Americans and the mongoloid Native Americans mixed with European, excuse me, would actually do the research 
and find out what Mr. Zotig had to say. It would be great because then they and us darker skinned indigenous Americans could come together peacefully. We are related. We are cousins. We are brothers and sisters. We need to come together and stop with the one drop rule nonsense. That is a European construct to separate us. And it has worked, unfortunately. Okay, off my soapbox, back to the book. Many origin stories have been handed down from generation to generation. Who's to say if they are true or untrue? Are we to judge these stories? Absolutely not. However, just where do the truth and facts begin to fade? A real scholar does not rely on cultural truths or just pass down stories alone, for you will lose a debate every time. A scholar relies on evidence gathered and analyzed using the scientific method. Why? Here's an example. The truth is it rained yesterday and that is also a fact. Today the fact is it is not raining and that is the truth. Here we see there is a weakness in using those words in an agreement. The weakness is, as we saw above, that truth and facts can change. A better word to use that never changes what actually happened is evidence, as in a crime scene. Evidence trumps truth or simple observed facts every time because evidence does not change. There you go. Time for a little commercial break and I'll be right back. Do you love music? Since 2005, Pitch Perfect Audio, located in Southern California, has been the source for the finest quality home audio stereo music systems. Their showroom is located in Cathedral City, California, and specializes in home stereo components crafted in the USA, England, Germany, Italy, and Japan. These unique products are designed with a singular purpose, for you to emotionally connect with the music that inspires you. Pitch Perfect Audio represents a range of cost-effective solutions for an enveloping musical experience in your home. And I can say from my experience listening to Pitch Perfect Audio stereo systems, shamanic drumming and solfeggio beats provides an immersive sound that you can only receive during a live performance. It's that amazing. Visit pitchperfectaudio.com to contact Pitch Perfect today for your stereo needs. I'm back. Okay, now we're going to talk about, or are going to read from uh, page 66 of First Americans Were African, Expanded and Revised by David Inhotep, PhD, second edition. So DNA evidence, how often is it correct? 99.8% of the time. Dr. Imhotep says, let us study the making of this myth. Firstly, according to DNA, the black, black Indians came to the Americas either directly from Africa or indirectly beginning in Africa, then temporarily lived in Europe, but finally sailed to the Americas. 
Below, please find the genetic evidence that the so-called Native Americans were not the first people in America. Their direct ancestors, the Africans, were the first people in the Americas, a.k.a. the Amerindians, the Amerinds, or Proto-Americans. With all due respect, the Native American ancient saying, we have always been here in the Americas, is not supported by science. The most predominant Y chromosome of Native Americans in North America is RM173. RM173 is found in the northeastern and southwestern parts of the United States, along with mtDNA haplogroup X, 25%. Both haplogroups are found in Africa, but are absent in Siberia. What this means is that Native Americans and Africans are directly related by their R1 Y chromosome lineage because of their African forefathers. But interestingly, Mongolians or Siberians from Eastern Asia do not have the RM173 with mtDNA haplogroup X markers. Also, tracing the DNA coming in from the northeastern United States, it probably exhibits the influx of the Anutwa Africans by boat from Scandinavia to Greenland and then to Canada. Then, of course, turning south into the northeastern United States, we see that they were preceded by the Anutwa Africans who entered South America by boat into Brazil and migrated through North Mexico. This possible migration could have continued into the southwestern United States. These migrations occurred, of course, tens of thousands of years before the Clovis event. Two, common sense backed by anthropological evidence, the study of bones. The first Neanderthals were Africans. Discuss later, but see here now in figure 12. Um, this is a picture of a Neanderthal from John Anthony Gurch on Wikipedia. In all three of the Americas, North, Central, and South, no one has ever discovered any human or ancient archaic bones older than Homo sapiens. They have never found bones relating to Australopithecus, Homo habilis, Homo erectus in Neanderthal, or Homo floresiensis. Therefore, can red-skinned Native Americans still say we have always been here? Are we not all part of the same family from the same place, Africa? Four different actual migrations African Indians made themselves across the Atlantic. The four groups are the Shawnee, Salk, Yuchi, and Yurok Indians. I'm on section three now. The first two tribes were part of the part of the Algonquian nation and each had a migration story of originally coming from across the ocean. The Algonquian Indians are Indian groups today who claim that they originated somewhere other than in the Americas. The following data is not based on a story but is an actual part of documented history. The first origin story is from the early 1800s AD. Shawnee Indian agent John Johnson reported in a letter that the Algonquian Indians told him that they came from across the sea, the Atlantic Ocean. 
This report was later still reprinted by Schoolcraft in 1851 in his Archaeologica or Archaeologia Americana, page 273, excuse me, Johnson wrote, the people of this nation have a tradition that their ancestors crossed the sea to get to the Americas. They're the only tribe with which I am acquainted who admits to a foreign origin. Lately, they kept yearly sacrifices for their safe arrival in this country from where they came or at what time period they do not know. These people not only passed the story of their origin down from generation to generation, they held yearly sacrifices to commemorate their journey to the Americas. The Algonquin, whose name means they are our relatives, can be traced to an early people, the Proto-Algonquians, who moved into and populated much of eastern Canada shortly after the retreat of the East Glacier around 15,000 years ago, Dr. Imhotep says. Based on their own history, these are the only North American Indian people to have originated somewhere in the Atlantic, then moved westward up to St. Lawrence and into the Great Lakes area. A second separate origin story of the Sauk Indians comes from yet another tribe in the Algonquian linguistic family. It concerns the Indians of Sauk County, which is near Baraboo, Wisconsin. So this excerpt is by Frank Joseph, um, published in 2009, called The Advanced Civilizations of Prehistoric America, The Last Kingdom of the Adena, Hopewell, Mississippians, and Anasazi, published by Bear Company, page 114. When French immigrants were settling in the town of Baraboo during the early 1800s, resident Sauk Indians still revered a giant who saved their ancestors by leading them to safety on the shores of Turtle Island, the Sauk name for North America, after a great deluge drowned their original lodge place in the Sunrise Sea, Atlantic Ocean. Dr. Imhotep says, what body of water sits towards the sunrise in North America? Would that not be the Atlantic Ocean? If it were the Sunset Sea, it would be this, the Pacific. Logically, the Salk Indians indicated that they came from the direction of the morning sun in the east. They also mentioned that a great deluge had drowned their land. That would probably be one of the many floods, flood stories that have been recorded by peoples all over the world. The recollections of this flood make their tribe older than the last ice age melt. So again, from Joseph Frank, and this time it's from Mysteries of the Effigy Mounds, Atlantis Rising, Volume 90, published in 2011. And this is an article uh, that was in the Atlantis Rising magazine. He says, the Sauk Indians themselves were also known by their, by their Algonquian tribal name, the Asakowig, or People of the Outlet a reference to people landing on the eastern shores of North America after the Great Flood. The third example, Dr. Imhotep says, was the Uchi tribe from the Gulf Coast of Alabama, yet they claim that their original homeland lay far across the sea in a fourth example. Proto-Americans have indicated that they originated in the area across the Atlantic Ocean. 
A brilliant anthropologist by the name of Alan H. Kelso de Montini wrote an article in the Interna International Anthropological Review in 2010. The title of the article was, Did a Gigantic Meteorite Fall into the Caribbean and Create the Lesser Antilles 6,000 Years Ago? He arrived at his dating theory after collating native traditions in the region. Was this the great deluge the elders told them about? The impact may be connected with the creation of the Carolina Bays and or the other impact sites as noted by Otto Muck. Muck earned an engineering degree from the Munich College of Advanced Technology. He held pat patents for around 2000 inventions by the time he died in 1956. Because of the evidence, he believed in the story of Atlantis located on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and that it was destroyed by an asteroidal impact in the Caribbean. He calculated that the disaster occurred in 8,498 BC. With circumstantial evidence from old stories that the natives from the Caribbean, Central America, and South America have kept for centuries, there must be something to their historic stories saying the old moon broke, coupled with the physical evidence. By the moon breaking, they meant an extraterrestrial object, a comet fragment perhaps, that fell into the ocean causing mass destruction. It was on a scale of the type expressed in the various myths and legends pre pre excuse me, preserved by the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean. After moving from Africa to the Caribbean to Alabama and then Florida, some descendants of the Europe people still live in California today. In 1916, Lucy Thompson, aka Chinawa Wichawa, a Klamath River York woman, um, you might be able to find her picture on the net. Anyway, she wrote a very interesting story, and this is it. Before introducing this lady, the book does not give a description of her. There is, however, a photograph of her on the cover of her book as seen above. She is a darker, complected person wearing a beautiful amaranth skirt and top. Her hair is worn in two bushy ponytails. She does not have a long, thin nose, but has a slightly wide, flat nose and a prognathic, non-European look. Her lips are between full and thin. The covering on her head is not a bonnet. Surprisingly, she is not wearing feathers. Instead, she wears a typical African skull cap. This is the most interesting and surprising item that she wears. This is not an anomaly. So uh, one of Dr. Imhotep's favorite books is The Cycle of Cosmic Catastrophes by Nuclear Physicists and has been part of the Isotopes Project at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. He's joined by the owner and CEO of an international scientific consulting company and a field exploration and mining geologist in Australia. One of his source books explained in detail what cataclysmic phenomena caused the last ice age to end. The reason we bring this book to your attention is that this book has a picture of a Native American princess who is not wearing a traditional Plains Indian bonnet or even one feather in her hair. Instead, she wears a West African skull cap, also called a kufi cap. But seeing the same kind of cap as that of the Europe woman is not the only coincidence. Why would a darker skinned Native American be wearing a traditional African hat? 
Many different cultures wear skull caps, from the Jews and the Islamic peoples to the Pope. Where did they copy this style from and who were the first to wear them? There is other evidence. Okay. And this is by uh, Reverend Hernandez, My Kingdom for a Crown and Around the World History of the Skull Cap and its Modern Sociopolitical Significance, page 28 to 29, accessed June 1st, 2013, uh, from the Dieter Philipp Files Literature, 1968, Antonio Hernandez, Histories of Skull Cap. You'll find it, the article on the net, probably. So the, art, the snippet of the article says, actually a skull cap appears in the oldest Egyptian tomb paintings. They are also seen in the hieroglyphs. Actually many shapes and sizes of caped skull caps or capped skull caps were once the norm in ancient Egypt. Muslims and old fashioned Asians also wear skull caps, but the American Indian seems to have no skull cap traditions at all. Back to Dr. Imhotep. The evidence, however, points to Africa. But if the Amerinds that we know of today do not wear skull caps, then why does Chinawa Weech Awa wear skull cap? In some pictures in her book, she looks like a typical African-American lady, and in others, she looks like a darker brown Amerind. Here's the evidence drawn from the cover and inside her book. She looks to be a mixture of both Amerind and African heritage. Her religious affiliations are deeply rooted with her tribe, which rules out Islam, Judaism, or any other Western religion. Logically, the cap must most likely comes from her African heritage. Okay. After introducing herself, she says that her people have a historic tradition of migration from across the Atlantic Ocean to the Americas. Then she begins to tell the historic trip her people made. She says, In our recollections of the past, we left the land of her birth, Chichik Alf, many thousands of years ago. For years, we wandered down a European land, always moving south, having our origin in the far north, as it might have been for centuries until we reached the rolling waves of the ocean. Upon reaching this salt water, we made boats or canoes and paddled west over the waves until we reached the opposite shore, having crossed the straits safely. Having reached this opposite shore upon this new continent, we continued always going south as before. She remembers... We carried the memory of the far north, the huge icebergs, the splendors of the aurora borealis flickered across the snowy fields. In this land of the frozen north, some of our people were left, the Eskimo, Eskimo. They were given a different language as they were separated from our sturdy band across the snowy fields and have long since from this time on inhabited the land of the perpetual snow. Though I am a pure, full-blooded, climactorable woman, gosh, Sorry, I will start that again. Though I am a pure, full-blooded Klamath River woman, a member of the exclusive priestly society known as Talth, I can understand every word, every nod and gesture made in our language. Therefore, I feel that I am in a better position than any other person to tell the true facts of the religion and the meaning of the many things that we used to commemorate the events of the past. 
Dr. Emhold Tepp says in figure 13, where she is, we go back to her dressed in her native wear. She looks beautiful. Um, notice the intricate beadwork and Europe clothing that China Wawich Awa wears. Also notice the African cap on her head along with the native hair wrappings on her ponytails. We finally find the fourth group, the Yuruks. The first hint that the Yuruks were originally African is that one of their splinter groups was the Eskimo, which linguistically changed over time to Eskimo. You may read about the first Eskimos in section note W, where you shall learn that the Eskimo people's heritage began in Africa. They lived in the bitter Arctic cold before the white man came, but even today they do not have a white skin color. Okay, here's an excerpt from Lucy Thompson, uh, The American Indian Reminiscence of a Yurok Woman, California Heyday Books, page 76, 77, 78, published in 1916. Thus we traveled down a great continent, leaving behind at our stopping places a portion of our people, which were given different languages and our tribes became numerous. We traveled over the continent of North America to the equator and regions of perpetual sunshine and beyond the equator over the continent of South America to its furthermost southern borders, where we merge into the regions of ice and snow again at Tierra del Fuego. So Dr. Anhotep says, this is the story of the Yurok people who spoke of their beginnings in their treasured Cheek Cheek Alp Valley in Northern Europe. How did the Proto-Yurok come to be in Northern Europe in the first place? This leads us to the second hint that the Yurok were probably African. Their third hint was covered earlier in that the Fuegians and the Khoisan had the same DNA, i.e. M174, coupled with the D-haploid groups. Leakey and other scientists have shown us that the first Homo sapiens began in Africa. We know that the first Europeans were Africans. The Yurok's possible ancestors, the Khoisan or Ignatian, migrated from northwestern Africa to Europe in the north. Other Africans migrated east to India or China, while some migrated to West Africa and on to the Americas. To make a long story short, that was just one more hint of the Yurok's African heritage. If all of these are but coincidences, they are most assuredly remarkable coincidences. The other Africans mentioned to have sailed to the Americas are a major African population called the Mandate from Sub-Saharan African and the Paleo-Americans. Wow. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to stop here. We will uh, continue with architectural evidence. This is very interesting. Um, and if you can, track down some of these articles and read it, read the information for yourself, and as always, use discernment, right? So, okay, I'm going to sign off. Be safe, take care of one another. And I'll come back with an episode soon. Peace out.